I was born to a mother who my father left her when she was pregnant. So I was essentially told coming into this world that one of the people that created me didn't want me. Jason Goldberg is an award-winning entrepreneur. I want to be sincere about growing my business or connecting with friends. But as soon as I shift my language into serious, for me, serious doesn't make me feel inspired and expansive. It makes me feel small and contracted. A TEDx speaker. It's possibly the only three words you need to remember from this entire talk. And although it's only three words, they can be three of the scariest words in the English language. An international best-selling author. A former rapper. I was a rapper for a number of years. I was always into hip-hop from a very, very young age and a transformational coach. Think about maybe the one thing you came to this summit for. There's somebody that you want to become in this world. You may be really afraid or scared to do it for a number of reasons, but you feel like if you just had Jack in your ear saying, yes, you can do this, keep fighting, that it would make the difference. Jason Goldberg, absolutely delighted to be joined by you on the Modern Warrior podcast. A man who has had an incredible adventure up to this point i like to use it use the word adventure it seems like you've had a lot of fun on this journey as well which is sometimes quite rare to see from a man with a high level of success in their life and as much as i would love to delve into your successes and your achievements and some of the great impact that you've created in other people's lives and around the world i want to get to know you first, the Jason Goldberg behind the success, behind the impact, behind the achievements. And my first question to you would be your earlier life and would be related to your earlier life and some of the greatest influences you would have had in your earlier life that you feel at this point have created the man or have helped create the man you've become today. Yeah, man. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And the 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 conversation, and, and I don't know if we'll go here or not, but just looking at some of the other stuff you've done and what you talk about, the conversation around uh, masculinity is something I, I really think is a conversation we need to have more and more nowadays. I think men need to be listening to this, but I think also women who feel like they want to support men should be listening to this as well. Uh, and it's it's really, really important. And it totally, it, it does go directly into the question that you're asking. And and for me, you know, my my early uh, upbringing, it's funny you said, like, who are the influences that shaped you? And my immediate thought went to who was the influence that was missing that was supposed to shape me? And that was my father. And so my dad left my mom as soon as she got pregnant. He said, I don't want to have any kids. You have an abortion or I'm leaving. And my mom said, bye. And, and that was the end. And he never turned back, never saw him, never talked to him, never saw He could have walked past me on the street. I wouldn't have even known who he was. And so... You don't know from a young age that that impacts you. And it's, it's not this thing where, and, and I won't say this is everybody's experience, but for me, there wasn't, from what I can remember, there, were ne there was never a time where I saw my friends who had moms and dads and I said like, oh, why don't I have a dad? Like that, that never happened. I was pretty clear that he just wasn't there, that he just left. And so I, I understood that he wasn't there, but it wasn't until much later that I started realizing what and who knows what kind of influence he would have been. Obviously not a great man to leave a pregnant woman. Uh, so maybe I, maybe I got a, a blessing in disguise by not having him be the one that shaped me. But I, I did realize that I started having this feeling of needing connection with 
older men, right? Men who are in a power position or an authority position and, and wanting to really impress them and really wanting to like get their approval. And, and that all stems from that. And so luckily, I will say the earliest male influence I had in my life that was probably the most powerful male influence I've had in my life is my uncle. So luckily enough, my mom's brother uh, really stepped in and was just an incredible guy, still is an incredible guy. And he is somebody who I'm very, very blessed that he was my influence early on because he is a man who I believe, before I knew any of these terms or any of this work, he really embodies the heart-centered, compassionate masculine, right? So he would be the guy that if you were crying, you could cry in his arms and he would hold you, but he's also the guy that would call you on your shit. And, and it was really important to kind of have that distinction. So I'm so grateful looking back that he was the first real male influence that I can say that I, I had. And that's, that shaped me a lot. And so I think that what that led to for me though, was that it was much easier for me to uh, be in my feminine. It was much easier for me to have the, you know, the, the, the love and the compassion and the softness and the empathy. That was very easy for me. It was tougher for me to step into the masculine uh, in so much as not so much with like decision-making or, or being ambitious that, that I had, but it was more this kind of like the, the softness was my default and it was really hard for me to step into anything that didn't feel like that. Right. And the feedback I got early on being somebody who uh, also was very overweight. So I was chunky from when I was a young kid, but I got up to 330 pounds by the time I was in my thirties, I was 250 pounds when I was 15, which is like, that's when kids are really loving and compassionate and would never make fun of you. So, so I had a lot of that crap going on, but what I think, what I found out there was, I, I needed connection. I didn't feel enough. I didn't feel lovable. I didn't feel like I deserved connection because I wasn't receiving it. And then something weird happened where girls at my high school would start coming to me with their problems. And, and a lot of times it was problems they were having with their boyfriends who were my friends, right? So I'm like, what the hell, man? And, and what I realized though, was that me leaning into empathy in those situations actually allowed me to feel connection. And so it was this interesting dance that I've always played with of like the thing that you're taught, because for me, when I was growing up, the friends I had in high school and God bless them, I, I don't blame them because they have whatever upbringing they had as well, but they would come to my house. They would all come to hang out and I would go into my kind of nurturing feminine of like, you know, Hey guys, can I get you guys a drink or like whatever, you know, trying to be a servant. And the response to that was, why don't you sit down faggot? Like what the fuck are you talking about? And so I was taught like, oh, being giving and nurturing, men don't connect with that, women do. And so women became my best friends forever and, and, and men became more difficult to connect with. So I'll stop there because I'll probably keep going off on a rant. But that's kind of the, the initial kind of feeling of how it's been to be me uh, on the back end. Yeah, it's almost as if there was a great connection with your uncle, but there was a disconnect within yourself in some way in terms of what it actually meant to be a young man or, or a teenager or young yeah. a young adult and how you were yeah. quote unquote supposed to behave around women or around your friends and and as much as your uncle stepped in and became the masculine figure for you it sounds like you've had to learn a lot of these things on your own through trial and error and through many failures and mistakes and was there a pivotal moment there on that journey where things potentially came to a grinding halt or you had an epiphany or you had a huge setback and you had to take stock of your your life you had to evaluate 
your current situation, understand that your actions and behaviors are actually not serving your growth and progress. And where did you go from that point forward? I've had so many and I continue to have them. I'm not done yet. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, there, there is a moment that I, I, I point to a lot as kind of feeling like it was a very pivotal moment. Uh, and it's actually, the, it's in the first chapter of my book, Prison Break. And it's this, there was this day in 2009. So I, I spent about 15 years in tech before I, I moved into being an entrepreneur back in 2011, I guess it's now 12 years. Um, and, uh, and so I was in my tech job, 2009, director of engineering and operations. I was in my late 20s. Uh, making well over six figures, had the house, the car, all the things that, you know, you're supposed to get and, and prove that you're a productive man, a v- valuable man. And I was also 330 pounds at that time, right? That was when I was at my highest weight, my lowest levels of, you know, happiness and joy, my highest levels of stress and anxiety. And I was pushing through because that's what you're supposed to do, uh, quote, supposed to do, but, but it, it definitely didn't feel right. And there was one day where I went to go make a purchase on Amazon and it was, wasn't a large purchase, maybe 50, 60 bucks. And, and it was my, my debit card. So I knew I had the money in the bank and the card kept getting declined. And I was also very angry back then. Uh, I was taught early on with my angry outburst that anger is also bad. And so you're meant to suppress all the anger. And that day I just couldn't hold it in. And this seemingly mundane, you know, minuscule thing of your card getting declined became this massive thing. And I like boiled over and I, I threw my chair back into the wall of my office and I stormed out of my building and, and I, and I, out of my office and I went into the, the, the center part of the building there and called the bank and I was so pissed off, man. And I finally get a live person on the phone and I'm basically yelling at this very, you know, innocent, kind human who's trying to help me. And I'm just saying like, what the hell's going on? Why is my card not working? And he does a little typing and he says, uh, Mr. Goldberg, it looks like there was some potentially fraudulent activity on the card. So we, we deactivated the card to protect your assets, to which any normal person would say, thank you. Like, thanks for looking out for me. But of course, I was like a rageaholic. And so I got even more upset. Like, what do you mean? Did somebody hack my account? Did somebody steal my identity? Like, what's going on? What are these charges? And he tells me, well, the charges were four fast food restaurant transactions in a single day. And their system flagged that because sometimes people will steal physical credit cards and go make small purchases to make sure the card's still active before they go make a large purchase. And of course, it wasn't fraudulent. That was me, right? I, I coped using food. If you're anxious, you eat. If you're stressed, you eat. If you're happy, you eat. If you celebrate, you eat. If you, you have a hard day coming up at work, you eat. Like everything was centered around eating as a coping mechanism. And so that became the moment and it wasn't a wake up call. It's not like I looked down that day and I was like, oh my God, I'm 300 pounds. Like I knew something was off. I knew I wasn't healthy. But this was the first time, Gavin, that I couldn't find somebody else to blame. Right? I had gotten really good at living from the mantra, who can I blame? That was my mantra. People have mantras now like the spirit of the divine inputs my third eye chakra, whatever. For me, it was who can I blame? And for whatever reason, man, that moment, it was, it was a lot of shame. This wasn't like a liberating moment for me. But in that moment, I was like, there's nobody else I can blame. This is literally a, a multi-billion dollar bank has cut off access to my funds because of the choices that I'm making in my life. That's a big one to, to digest. It's, it's having that perspective too, though, isn't it? I mean, you could have easily dismissed that experience and put it down as... Oh, well, so what? But to me, it sounds like there was an accumulation of those minor moments coming up to that very moment 
in your life and this was the tipping point potentially so you've you've reached this tipping point you've fallen off the proverbial cliff so to speak you're maybe feeling like you're at rock bottom or quite close to it where do you go from there yeah so so once i get over the initial shame kind of shock and shame of of finally allowing myself to see the truth of what was going on in my my situation and not making excuses uh the one thing i had going for me and it's the reason that you know i started off doing tech related stuff when i was like 12 or 13 and so by the time i'm in my 20s you know i have 15 years in this thing right and i really know that this stuff but the thing that helped me to be really successful or one of the things i should say that helped me to be really successful in technology consulting which i think could help in any any business or any endeavor is my ability to reverse engineer right so i could look at systems and reverse engineer the way they worked so that i could customize or install a new solution or design a new solution for some other company and because my default when i want to learn is to reverse engineer i ask myself well what is it that people who have been through far worse traumas than I have, not to compare traumas, right? You can drown in eight feet of water and you can also drown in eight inches of water, right? So trauma is trauma, but, but objectively to me, people who have been through worse things, rapes and, you know, parents being murdered and all, just all these terrible things that you would never wish on anybody. And I didn't have those things happen. How is it that some of those people don't seem to have the same level of, of victimhood or the same level of hopelessness or the same level of, of, of excuses that I have? And so that's when the reverse engineering came in. And I was like, I want to start learning about this stuff. I had never picked up a self-help book. I had never, it was never something that was even on my radar. And so I started reading. And the reading is what led me to a man who is called Steve Chandler, who is still to this day, one of my coaches. And to me, the godfather of, of life coaching. Actually, a lot of people think that about him. He's written a ton of books. He's in his seventies now. And he was the first person to really show me He's an amazing guy. He, he, he would coach these really high level people and they would ask him, uh, what are your qualifications? He would go into a corporate setting. What are your qualifications? And he would say, uh, uh, alcoholic, uh, wife had brain damage and went into a facility, uh, raising four kids on my own, uh, bankruptcy. Uh, should I continue? And, and th those were his credentials, right? And so when I came across him, somebody who was so open about his flaws, so open about the things that didn't work in his life, and wearing them as the badge of honor to say, I chose to turn these experiences into something that would actually serve me. And then in his case, serve others. It really opened me up to say, okay, well, what's, what's possible here? And he's the one who really introduced me to victim consciousness for the first time, right? Just victimhood, which I, I call kind of being a prisoner in, in my book, hence the title prison break. And so he was just huge at helping me to see that I really do have much more control over my experience of life than I ever thought I did. So he handed you the key to unlock your prison cell ultimately and what were some of the pra practical steps you put in place after that in order to initiate progress from that point forward yeah well it's funny so even when you say that he handed me the key it's there, there was a movie back in the day it was called i don't remember the exact name but it was a spoof on like robin hood and so i think it was called like robin hood men in tights instead of robin hood prince of thieves mm -hmm. or whatever it was and there's a scene where this like massive dude is, is in a river and he's drowning. He's like, oh my God, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, somebody save me. And the main character goes, dude, stand up. You're in three inches of water, right? And so he's like, oh, okay. So Steve essentially did the same thing. There, there was no key needed because the jail cell was imaginary, right? And so it was more like, it was better than giving me the key is to remind me that I'd created the cell to begin with. And then it's much easier because then there's no work to be done. 
And so, so some of the things that I've learned from him that have really stuck first and foremost is the whole victim consciousness thing and realizing that you have an opportunity at any given moment to step into what I call self-leadership, right? Instead of being led by your life, you can lead your life. Instead of being used by your life, you can intentionally use your life. Uh, you can milk your life. You can milk this experience of life for everything it has to offer. And, and that was a huge one for me. Uh, another one uh, that led to a mantra that I created for myself is creativity is greater than circumstance. And to recognize that with enough time and attention and intentionality given to any problem, any circumstance, it will be overwhelmed in no time, right? That problem will be overwhelmed in no time. And the third thing I'll say that's been a massive, massive thing for me is the idea of not taking myself or my life too seriously. And, and some people will hear that, especially people that are ambitious and go-getters. And remember, I'm like type A, you know, six figures in my 20s, trying to go up the ladder, doing all the things. So for me, it's like, what do you mean? You don't take something seriously, then, you know, you're not going to get your work done and, and you're not going to excel. You're not going to make money. You're not going to increase. You're not going to all these things. And, and through him, I was introduced to somebody else who I love, uh, Alan Watts, who I'm not yeah. sure if you're familiar with any of his work, mm -hmm. but I love, love Alan Watts. And Alan Watts has this beautiful- Big fan. What was it? Say again? Yeah, big fan. Yeah, he's, he's incredible. And, and one, of the, one of the distinctions he has that really opened up this whole not so serious thing for me was he has this distinction of serious versus sincere, right? So I want to be sincere about the work that I'm doing. I want to be sincere about how I treat my girlfriend in partnership. I want to be sincere about growing my business or connecting with friends or, or focusing on my health. I want to be sincere about that. But as soon as I shift my language into serious, Serious has really dire consequences. And for me, serious doesn't make me feel inspired and expansive. It makes me feel small and contracted. And so I started shifting my language from I'm going to be sincere about my relationships. I'm going to be sincere about my health. I'm going to be sincere about my business because sincerity comes with it. Love and focus and attention and intentionality and all those things that I just mentioned devoid of the heaviness of seriousness. Yeah, I love that. Being serious has a sense of rigidity, doesn't it? And restriction. Yeah, I can relate. Yes. I can relate greatly to that. And being able to let go and uh, be present with all that you do. So you're not mixing work with work time with relationship time. You're not mix, mixing family time with yeah. free time. You've got time and you're present with each and every single segment of your entire day of your entire of your entire life so everyone gets the best of you and you give the best to yourself and is that something as well that you're quite consistent with in terms of time for you and what does that look like the presence thing you nailed it man it's it's huge it, it's it's such a challenge right because we have so much stuff coming at us and, and we're tricked into thinking that uh you know, some, somewhere along the line in the English language, the word priority got pluralized, right? And it, you can't have multiple the most important thing. That's not the way it works. And I think that's what takes a lot of people, myself for sure, out of presence is this belief that I have to manage all these different things in life at the same time. And, and so, yes, the presence thing is huge. And part of that is, uh, and I think this is what you're asking, is really making sure that I give myself the time that I need to be in the optimal position that I can be to be of service. And that doesn't just mean in work, to be of service, again, to my, my partner, to the stranger I see on the street that may need some help, to a family member, to a friend, whatever it is. 
And so for me, I'm, pr- I'm a pretty routine guy. I, I, and it's funny, I don't think I was always a routine guy. So when people are like, oh, I'm not a routine person. Uh, you know, I, I remember when I first wanted to start getting up early and I wasn't quote a morning person. And I wanted to start, this is when the 5 a.m. club was sweeping the nation. Uh, and so, you know, I want to be a part of the 5 a.m. club and just see if I can do it. And so my goal was, I want to be able to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go to the gym. So most people say, okay, starting tomorrow, I'm going to get up at five o'clock in the morning and go to the gym. And there are a percentage of people who do it and they crush it. Fantastic. But the vast majority don't, or at least not for too long. So instead for me, I wanted to look at, instead of, you know, doing the impossible, I wanted to do the doable. And doing the doable for me meant that for the first week of this practice, I woke up at five o'clock in the morning, I stood up out of bed for 30 seconds, and then I went back to sleep. Because now I proved to myself that I can wake up at five o'clock in the morning and get out of bed. Then the next week, I woke up at five o'clock in the morning, I put on my gym clothes, and then I went back to sleep. So now I've proved to myself, not only can I get up, but I have the wherewithal to put on the clothes that I need to go to the gym. By the third week, getting up and putting on my clothes at 5 a.m. was just normal. It's just what I do. So then I left and went to the gym. And I've been a, quote, morning person ever since. And that was literally over 10 years ago that I did that. And so now I wake up more 6, 6.30 because I'm not a psycho. But but that that's a big thing for me. So the mornings for me is waking up, meditation, uh, meditation slash visualization. I also have a thing that I've written to myself. And it's funny because it keeps evolving. Things keep getting added to it. It'll probably be a, a book by the time I'm done with it. But right now it's a 10 minute, it takes me about 10 minutes to read this thing to myself. And everything that I need to prepare me for the day between my ears is inside of this document, right? And so I read this to myself every morning to get me anchored in. Then I go to the gym, do my gym stuff, come home, do all the supplements, do the smoothie, do all that stuff, then shower, then get to work. But the reason that that is so important to me and everybody has their own thing. So I'm not saying that you have to have a morning routine, but the reason it works for me is that to me, it's the way I look at it is if you're a firefighter, when you start your shift, it is your job to check all of the equipment in the firehouse, right? You got to check the gear. You got to check the truck. You got to check the hoses, all that stuff. Because when a fire breaks out, there is no time to check the equipment, right? So I want to make sure that I am checking the equipment in the morning so that when the fires happen, inevitably, as they do, I'm not stuck trying to then check the equipment and get the equipment ready for the fire. Thanks, Jason. I'm going to steal that analogy now. <laughs> I love that. Sure as man, take it. I love that one. How did you manage the guilt that's associated with not getting up at 5 a.m. and n- not going to the gym? You mentioned you got up, stood out of bed for 30 seconds, then went back to bed. To me, I thought if, if the alarm went off at 5 o'clock and I stood out of bed for 30 seconds... I'd really struggle to get back to sleep because I'd be thinking, man, like I should be getting up. I should be going to the gym. I should be getting this morning routine in place. I shouldn't be going back to sleep. How did you, and I'm, I'm not there now, thankfully, but I know many people are, they're guilted into having this routine. And of course the guilt consumes them and morning routine is completely squandered because of that, because it's coming from a place of fear, not a place of, of love ultimately. So how did you manage the, the guilt that was potentially associated with that or how can you help someone else manage the guilt that's associated with a morning routine for themselves? Yeah, it's, it, you nailed it, man. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's terrible that we, we really do have a, a shame-based motivation in our society, right? So much of the motivation is shame-based and, and guilt and shame, right? Two sides of the same coin. And so 
what I will say, and I, and I don't recall having any guilt back then, but I, I do 100% know that I have felt and still once in a while feel at the end of the day, like, oh, I should have done more, right? Objectively, I did whatever I did. I did plenty. I did whatever was in front of me, but oh no, I should have done more. Or especially if there's a new project I'm launching that I'm really excited about. And I'm like, oh shit, I should have spent more time on it because now it's like another day away, right? So I get all that. The answer for me on that is the number one character trait that I feel is important to be, uh, I'm gonna use the word successful loosely because I don't want it to be you know, cornered into a, some specific thing about success, but whatever success means to you, the number one character trait to develop and to, and to nurture is integrity, right? Integrity to me is everything. And, to, and integrity to me is not an ethical thing, right? For a lot of people, if you look up the definition of integrity, there's a lot of like ethical and moral implications. I'm not doing that shit. That's more shame. To me, integrity is either I'm, I'm in integrity to my word, to myself and others, or I'm not. And that's not a judgment. It's an objective observation. And so as long as I'm doing what I said and gave my word to do, then I am off the hook for anything else. So I gave my word to myself in that first week that I would wake up at 5 a.m. I did not give my word to myself that I would do anything else but that. So to me, I felt very satisfied because I was in integrity to my word. And so that goes with work stuff. I mean, I had a client that I worked with a few weeks ago. We did a full day intensive together. Guy owns a, a large design uh, company in, uh, in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe. And he came and he, he dumped 25, 30 things he wanted to cover in this one day session together, which I'm like, oh, fuck, man. We got one day, bro, not one week. But he had like 25 things he dumped here, personal and professional stuff. It became clear within the first two hours of us being together that integrity to his word would actually knock about two thirds of the things off the list. It's literally one thing, bro. Integrity to his word to himself and others would knock out two thirds of the things that were keeping him up at night. And if that doesn't tell you the power of integrity, I don't know what does. Where does integrity, where do you place integrity in terms of, uh, let's say the, the ladder of self development. And what, and what I mean by that is, is it, is it purpose first? Is it values then? Is it goals? And then is it integrity or is it integrity, purpose, goals, values? How does it, where does it fall for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, man. There, and, and, and I'm sure you, you see that too. It's, it, they're all so interconnected. But to me, the, the integrity piece kind of sits above all of those things, right? Because this is one of those things where, you know, uh, years ago, uh, so there, there's an airline here in the U.S. They don't do much international, but uh, called Southwest Airlines. You probably heard of Southwest at some point. And, and Southwest is like the low frills, no frills uh, uh, airline, right? There's no, you don't even have it signed seating. It's literally like everybody gets on in a corral and you just get whatever seat you want. Uh, there's no, there's no upsells. There's no first class. There's no business class. It's very, very basic. And yet they were the only airline that was profitable for like 20 years straight when a bunch of the other airlines are just hemorrhaging money. And so United Airlines, much bigger airline and American Airlines, much bigger airline said, oh, we can do this low frill shit too. So United created a offshoot called TED, which is just the end of United, right? United. And they're like, okay, we're going to create TED and TED is going to be our low cost carrier. Failed miserably. Failed miserably. Why? Well, it's because Southwest has ingrained in their culture from start to finish love. 
right? True, genuine love, caring, concern for their fellow employees, for their the people that fly with them. Everything is based in genuine care and concern, right? Genuine client astonishment. Whereas United was just trying to cut shit out so they could make more money. And so the reason I say all that is if you go set all the goals in the world and do all these things, but you're not somebody who's coming from integrity, those goals are either going to be harder to reach or impossible to reach because the man or the person that you need to be to accomplish those goals requires a high level of integrity. So, so to me, they are completely intertwined, but to me, that has to be in place first before the rest of the stuff happens. Self-love is a massive part of that integrity, is it? Yeah, it's, 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 inter yes, self-love, it's, to me, self-love is simply the absence of self-criticism, right? And so, so where a lot of times there's a message of, I need to develop self-love, uh, which there's nothing wrong with that. And there are tons of practices to help you really develop more self-love. And there's nothing wrong with, with any of those. And at the same time, if you just remove self-criticism, now that's not the same as self-reflection, Right. But if you remove self-criticism, what's left over is self-love. You need a bit of self-criticism. There needs to be a bit of a balance there too, though. Would you agree? Well, that's why I said it's not the same as self-reflection, yeah. right? Because self-reflection is going to show you the truth of, of what you're doing and why it may not be serving you. Self-criticism says you're not doing this thing and what the fuck is wrong with you? I can't believe after all these years, you're still doing that thing that you thought you had taken care of all this time. So as you reflect back now on the beginning of this entrepreneurial journey for yourself, did that come from a place of self-reflection and self-love or did it begin from a place of self-criticism, criticism, which then became self-love? I think if, if I, if I really think back, there was, it was interesting because <laughs> I don't know, this is a, I always tell when I have clients who are, who have started a new business and they want to start another new business at the same time. And I say, you know, that's like having a baby and a puppy at the same time, like just get one or the other, make sure they're all set and then bring the other one in. Cause it can be really stressful. If not, the reason I say that is because when I started my first company was at the exact same time that I was going through my weight loss journey. And so those two things together just bring up all the shit. I mean, like, you know, Business and relationships are the two greatest vehicles for personal growth. I would add body transformation is pretty close in there as well. And so I'm laughing. I've never thought of this before, so I appreciate the question. But I feel like I was being tested in every direction uh, during that time because I've left my six-figure salary and gone from six figures to zero in one day. I have this startup that we're just you know, constantly trying to raise money to, to get this thing off the ground. Uh, I, I'm trying to you know, be... Uh, smart about my choices with food and movement and all these things while also losing weight and still seeing a 330 pound man in the mirror. And so like reconciling who I am, my identity was a huge part of that. And it continues to be at every, at every kind of junction point of my life where something changes, something transforms, it requires me to look at the identity that I've been holding on to. And so I think in that particular time of, of life, I was having to shift the identity of a 330 pound man and the identity of this corporate, you know, uh, you know, hotshot for lack of a better word in this particular company and the identity I had around that being my value, right? That's what, that's what made me valuable. So yeah, man, there was a lot of, there was a lot of questioning of who I actually am and that's, that hasn't stopped. I'm still always questioning who it is that I am.
Are you a little bit closer to finding the answer to that? Well, it depends. It depends on the lens that you look through, right? And and so, the 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 deeper spiritual answer to that is yes. I know exactly who I am, and who I am is awareness. That's that's all I actually am. Like the only thing that hasn't changed since the time I was born was the fact that I'm aware, right? My body's changed. My thoughts have changed. Everything around me has changed. The only thing that has been constant my entire life is awareness. And it's only when I mistake who I am for what I think that I suffer, right? When I confuse the thoughts and the, and the bias and the perceptions and the feelings and all the things that, I, that, that are present inside of this host, right? If we call me a host, all the things that are present inside of me as a host, when I think that's who I am, then I am essentially playing the role of this small self who needs to be protected from every thought and every threat and needs to make sure everything is certain and always chooses the right path. And that's a really tiring role to play. And so when I can take a step back from that and say, I am not those things, I am aware of those things, that helps. Now, here's the problem with that, is that when I tell people that, they say, okay, this sounds again like the not being too serious thing. It sounds like, okay, well, if I'm not those things, I just get to ignore all of my responsibility. Well, I'm, I'm not my paycheck, so I don't need to worry about my paycheck. I'm not my relationship. I don't need to worry about my relationship. But, but here's, here's the truth of the matter. Here's how you can put this into, into practice. So I, I coach a lot of people in entertainment. And, and one of the people that I coach is somebody who was in, who was one of the leads of one of the Batman movies. And so we were having this conversation around identity. And so this kind of analogy occurred to me that I used it with, with this person. And I said, imagine that you are the director of a Batman movie. And I, I'm going to say, let's say Michael Keaton is your star because Ben Affleck and all these idiots. I, I'm sorry. I can't get on board. Michael Keaton is the original Batman. So let's pretend you are the director of Batman, the movie starring Michael Keaton. And you're, you're on set and you're filming a scene and Batman's doing his Batman thing. He's karate chopping people and, you know, rappelling down, doing all the crazy cool Batman shit. You finish the scene, you yell cut. You're talking to your crew, getting ready for the next scene. And you look over and you see Batman pacing back and forth on the set. And you say, well, I mean, this is my star, right? I got to make sure he's okay. And so you walk up to him and you go, hey, what's, what's going on, man? And he says to you, you know, I don't know, Gavin, what if, um, what if I'm not strong enough to beat the Joker? What if, what if my technology is not powerful enough? What if the people of Gotham City die and it's all my fault? How am I supposed to live with their blood on my hands? And you, as the director are thinking like, what the fuck is he talking about? We're filming a movie. Like, what, what's wrong with this guy? But, you know, he's your star. You want to take care of him. So you have two choices. Number one, you can say, okay, Batman, let's figure out how to make your tech more powerful so you can beat the Joker and save the people of Gotham. Or you can remind him that he's Michael Keaton playing the role of Batman. And as soon as he understands that he's Michael Keaton playing the role of Batman, it doesn't mean that Batman's problems cease to exist. It doesn't mean you ignore Batman's problems. But when Michael Keaton realizes he's Michael Keaton, his relationship to Batman's problems change entirely. He can now be a collaborator with Batman to help him fix his problems without thinking they are his problems himself. And so this is the more practical way that I can look at this and say, okay, at any given moment, when I'm getting stressed out, I will literally sit for a moment, I will close my eyes, and I will call it out loud. I don't even care if there's people in the room. I'll call it out loud. Today, I am playing the role 
of Jason, the frustrated entrepreneur who's pissed off that his new project is taking so long to get off the ground, right? And I can play that role Oscar award-winning, man. I know exactly what that guy says. I know exactly what he does. I know exactly what excuses he makes. I know exactly how pissed off he gets. I know everything about that role. And then still with my eyes closed, I asked myself, okay, cool. That's the role that I'm playing. Totally fine. How does it feel right here, right now, if they had yelled cut and I went back to my dressing room and I took off whatever the costume was that Jason, the frustrated entrepreneur, is pissed off that his project's not moving fast enough, whatever he wears, if I took that off and I'm just sitting here in my chair, in my trailer, looking in the mirror, how does it feel right here, right now, without an attachment to that role? And when I sit there for a moment and I try to find out, does it feel more stressful? Does it feel more peaceful? What does it feel like? And 100% of the time, man, there's some sliver of peace that comes in. And when I can have, when I can find, when I can uncover that moment of peace, my ability to then go back and tackle the problems that Jason, the frustrated entrepreneur has are vast. Love that. Yeah. The attachment to our external tasks, jobs, titles, money, materials. I'm not who I am. I am what I do. So and I think that's a big thing for men is this. I've spoken about this before several times is the performance-based esteem that I feel a lot of men are trapped in. That the only their self-esteem is dependent on mm-hmm. how much of how much success they're creating in their life or how much money they've got in the bank or how nice their car or their house is and all these external factors. If I'm doing, if I'm doing well, then I am well. And ultimately without those external means, they're empty inside, but they never actually stopped to fill themselves up. And you know, that the work begins within. And has this been, you know, you strike me as someone who was caught in that trap of external val- external validation, external praise, external materials, money, wealth, fame. And if I have all these things on the outside, I feel good on the inside. Have you been able to flip that around? So, yes. And being fully transparent, no-ish. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So... I figured out it was probably maybe two years ago or so. I don't I don't know what shifted. I wish I wish I could tell you. I, I don't I don't think it was COVID related. I, I don't I didn't I didn't have any downtime during COVID. My business actually took off during COVID because we were helping people online, and, and so we actually had a lot. So I actually in some ways regret that I didn't have that kind of time to just be with myself and, and really slow down. But I'm grateful because it obviously kept us all afloat, uh, kept the company afloat while while the pandemic was happening. But Somewhere in that timeline in the last few years, the desire for celebrity and the desire for fame and to be seen and all these things, it's fallen away. And I don't know if that's a, an emotional maturity thing. I don't know if it's a getting older thing. Uh, I'm 43 now. I don't know if there's something tied into that. I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but, but something went away. And so that's why I can say yes. But the reason I say no-ish is because then it got transferred over to the man that I will be for my future family, for my wife and for my kids. And so in a way, the same level of 
you are enough as a man if you are a protector and a provider for your family. It's it's kind of another version of the same thing. Now, it seems better because it's not rooted in ego, right? I'm not doing it because I want people to think I'm a good protector and provider. I want to do it because I want to be a good protector and provider. And, and so while that is that feels more selfless and feels more reasonable, I think you can still, or I'll, I'll own my experience, I think I can still get stuck in having that be a measure now of my worth. And so I'm, I'm still yeah. playing with that piece yeah. for myself. So am I. We like to uh, <clears throat> at least believe that we are doing all this for a greater purpose, for a higher purpose, but the ego is always knocking on the door there, isn't it? It's always very enticing and very tempting to fall into that egotistical approach in, in life. And it's something I purposely try to test myself with on a regular basis. I drive, like, this is something I actually did. I used to drive a, a BMW and I sold it and I bought a very modest Ford Focus and it's, I still have it. It's, it's over 10 years old. I could tomorrow morning go ahead and buy a brand new car, but I almost nice. purposely hold on to that car because I'm not attaching my identity or my success to this thing that's made out of metal and rubber and to create some sort of statement to the world that I'm someone who is yeah. successful or wealthy. I already believe that I'm that person within. I don't need the car to project this insecurity upon upon the world so i like to put these little tests in the way for myself but as i said it, it's, it's still there still it still challenges me and it challenges us uh, for sure i think probably when you've created wealth and you have such a yeah. have had such an impact it becomes quite addictive as well the praise the credit the knowing that you can make a difference but as I said, it's identifying the fuel source that's driving you forward. Is it coming from a place of fear, a place of lack, or is it coming from a place of love? And it always go, all goes back to, for me in a way, that the morning time is filling myself up. And the, uh, the journaling, the meditation, the workouts, the cold plunge, all I do in the morning is to make sure that I am full of love and appreciation and gratitude. And when I'm full, I just want to give it away to everyone else that comes comes into my world for the day. And that's a repetitive process on a daily basis. But yeah, I, I really appreciate your honesty and your transparency there. And and if we had someone listen to this podcast who is perhaps living the life of Jason Goldberg of 10, 15 years ago, who is potentially in a quite a good job making a lucrative amount of money, high status has again all the all of this material wealth and success but deep inside is quite miserable and wants to get away from this corporate rat race and create their own entrepreneurial journey or start to start on their own entrepreneur, entrepreneurial journey what sort of advice or strategies or tips could you offer this person knowing what you know now from your own experience yeah a lot and it's it's you know the first thing that came to mind as you were talking was I always say you, you, you can't get out of bed until you wake up. Right. And, and so there, there's a, there's a waking up that has to happen. Just like, you know, sometimes it's forced on you. Sometimes it's outside in, sometimes it's inside out. Right. For me, it was outside in with the whole bank situation. 
but it doesn't have to be. You don't have to wait for that to happen to have your transformation. So I think the 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 intentional focus on an inside out understanding of who you are, where you're coming from and why, again, not to criticize, not to judge, not to shame, but just as like a science experiment, right? Like an archeologist, right? Just trying to see where you come from and, and sitting with yourself. And, and if I'm, if I'm not mistaken and correct me if I'm wrong, did you have, didn't you have a book on self-acceptance? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. art of self-acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. And so to me, that practice Right. Be, and I don't know exactly how you talked about it, but that practice of self-acceptance, being able to sit there and welcome in every single part of you as you sit, which it's tough. I mean, I, another client I was working with uh, last week is a CFO of a, of a media company. He went away for two or three weeks to Asia by himself. And I told him, I said, I challenge you to take at least one day and do nothing. Because this guy is just like, go, go, go. Oh, I'm going to go to Asia and I'm going to do everything. So he says, okay, cool. He agrees. I'm watching his Instagram. He's going, he's doing everything. The guy's going like, he, he had like seven meals in a day. I'm like, how did you even do that? Like he's working out at this Muay Thai thing and he's, he's doing this adventure. And I was like, what the hell? So we have a call last week and he goes, you know, there was one day I, I was going to go to this kickboxing gym that I really wanted to go to that was in Thailand. It was my only day I was going to be able to do it. And I was driving there on the scooter and I kind of, the scooter came out from underneath me and I kind of messed up my knee and my arm a little bit. And he said, you know what? I thought about what you said. And he said, you know what? Maybe I'll just take today off. Like maybe I won't do the kickboxing. Maybe I'll just go back to the hotel and just chill for a little while. So he goes back to the hotel and in the midst of doing nothing, he had to do what we all are afraid of doing. He sat with his thoughts. He really slowed down enough to sit with his thoughts. And luckily he had the insight and the awareness to not judge those thoughts and to just kind of sit with them and witness them and be compassionate to them and welcome them in. But that's something that we all should be doing. And there's not many things I say people should be doing, but that's something I really think we should all be doing in service of ourselves is sitting there and saying the part of me that is worried, my value is, is tied up in the money I have in the bank. Welcome. Like the part of me that thinks if I don't have this amazing car, then, you know, women won't be interested in me. Welcome. Like welcome in all those parts, because as long as we're in resistance to any of those parts, they're going to continue running the show. And it's not a one and done thing. You're not going to sit there one time and magically everything's processed. And that's okay. That's it's, you know, for me, I, I had those things for 30 years before I even started the process of transformation. So they don't go away overnight. They may not go away ever, but at least you know how to navigate them better. And, and through that, that self-acceptance, what I think opens up for people is once they start questioning, uh, first accepting and then questioning these beliefs about who they, they are, then they start questioning why they're doing what they're doing at all, right? And so like, why am I in this job? Does it, does it bring me joy? Does it feel like it's in alignment? Is it a means to an end? Is there something bigger that I want to create? Uh, am I just stuck here because I'm afraid of what it looks like to take, take the leap into a new company or industry or start my own thing? These are the, the fundamentals that have to be done before we put in strategies and practices to find another job, start a new company, do whatever. If we don't do that first, then we're being like United who thinks just by cutting out all the frills, they can be just like Southwest. Brilliant. This doesn't work. Yes. Love it, man. Absolutely love this conversation with you and very insightful, very inspirational. And you continue to inspire me and inspire others around the world with the work you do. So for everyone listening to this podcast, please do them all a massive favor and let them all know where they can find you, potentially reach out and work with you or simply 
grab your book and watch your brilliant content. Well, thank you, man. Well, again, thank you for inviting me on. Thank you for facilitating this conversation and for having these conversations with as many people as you can to help all of us, uh, myself included. I get helped by this as well. So you, you may not know it, but I got insights for myself from being on here. So thank you for that. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I, I appreciate the shout out. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I am the Jason Goldberg. I, Jason Goldberg was taken, so I got the most pretentious name I could, the Jason Goldberg. Uh, so you can follow me there, and you can actually get a free copy of my book, uh, digital, uh, audio, or if you're in the States, you spend a few bucks for shipping and handling, I'll send you a paperback. If you go to uh, thejasongoldberg.com slash Gavin, uh, you'll be able to get a free copy of the book there. Sweet. Get on it. I will add those links in the show notes below, everyone. So get on it. Do yourselves a massive favor and become even more inspired by this great man, Jason Goldberg. Thank you, my man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you having me.